we really should give it a shot to solve a problem we see coming before it happens. Just for once. Hello, the internet. You're listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist, I'm a best-selling humorist, and I desperately need a haircut. Uh, It was weird. The beginning of lockdown back in March, I decided I was done messing with my uh, high-maintenance hairstyle and just shaved it all off. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Maybe it was, but... You know, now it's uh, grown in at a very awkward length, and I I don't know what to do with it. So I'm just, you know, 24-7 bedhead around here, Um, which is potentially a problem when you're launching a book. Although, because of quarantine, I don't have to make any uh, in-person appearances, so maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, For this episode, I had on a guy named... Ben Rowe. Um, Now, Ben is not someone I knew prior to this. I just met him via Twitter. Uh, He's a cool guy. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about this. He does a a podcast with his wife on the entire history of horror movies, which is like right up my alley. Uh, We probably talked a little more than we should have (laughs) about that before we got to the real point of the show, which was UBI, universal basic income. Like, should the government uh, guarantee a certain amount of income for every one of its citizens? Um, Now, Ben used to be against this. He came around on it. So we talked about how he got there. Um, Ben, of course, is Canadian. So he's coming at this from a little bit different perspective than a lot of American listeners might be. Um, so I hope you'll give him a chance and hear him out. Um, I'll go ahead and flip you over to my conversation with Ben and I will see you on the other side. Ben, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Luke. Ben is a podcaster. His uh, podcast he does with his wife is called Scream Scene. That's scene is an S-C-E-N-E. It is a great little podcast where they are watching every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then ranking them from best to worst, which is like... I was telling Ben before we recorded is the perfect confluence of like all my interests. Um, cinema, horror, ranking things for no good reason. Um so yeah, I, I only started listening to it today, which I, I feel bad about. I'm kicking myself. I'm like, why did you listen to it months ago? But um, it's pretty great. You should check it out. I want to ask, is it watching horror movies in chronological order? Like, mm-hmm. how do you decide? How, I mean, I imagine, I imagine like there are horror, there are lots of horror movies out there that have been like lost to time. Yes. Um, but beyond that, like, how do you decide one is significant enough? to watch like obviously like i imagine like joe bob shooting the super eight film in his backyard (laughs) his cousins is probably not going to make the list but yeah we had to decide on some criteria or early on right and i mean you have 
you have sort of two intersecting lines of criteria, right? You have to decide what horror is for one, right? right. right? Like, because one of the things about any genre is they, they develop and they evolve. So horror, for instance, um, really comes from um, Gothic literature. Sure. And Gothic literature, if you sort of trace those lines of descent, ends up turning into three different genres eventually, which is horror, romance, and mystery. Mm-hmm. And um, so you, what happens is in the early stages of any genre, you have these points where okay is this horror is this still something else and you know if you're wanting to trace the history of a genre you do have to start with the early stuff that isn't quite fully formed yet and then once you kind of can say well this is definitely horror then as you move forward in history okay well do you include stuff that is edge cases for example okay we can all probably agree that alien uh the ridley scott film is a horror Mm -hmm. movie but is aliens the Mm -hmm. sequel Right. Um, you know, um, most people call that an action movie. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, so so you have that. And in the first episode of the show, um, we talk about the um, the court decision in the United States in the 1960s about pornography. Uh, the judge who oh, said yeah. uh, defined pornography as I know it when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's sort of how horror is as well. Um, as for significance, um, just to make our lives easier, um, we define a film for the purpose of our show as being a feature film that was released theatrically, um, which means that in the early portions of the timeline, uh, we're actually getting probably more schlock than we will eventually, because after a certain point, schlock moves on to direct to television, direct to video, direct to streaming. Um, And we're going to, for the most part, be avoiding those, even though there's tons of great stuff that goes direct Mm -hmm. to streaming or direct video. Um, but you just have to draw the line somewhere, right? Yeah, that is an interesting point, too, yeah. is that there, there, there's really two points where production of video content really exploded. One was the creation of TV, and then one would have been like the introduction of streaming to the world. Right, know? exactly. And you have stuff that you know starts as um, online-only stuff and then becomes big stuff later, like um, the uh, VHS horror movies, oh, which yeah, are, yeah. you know, anthology films, but they started as little, you know, web series things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of categorization that, that mm. has to go into that. And ultimately, you know, if you're ranking, you're doing a show like this where you're looking at genre, or you're ranking things or whatever, you, you, you have to admit that categorization is arbitrary, right? So what I think is horror might not be what you think is horror. And even if there's stuff that we can all agree on, there's going to be edge cases, but even if categorization is arbitrary, you have to use it sometimes just to manage what you're talking about. Sure. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So I haven't gotten a chance to find this out yet. Cause I'm, I haven't even made it through the one episode I'm listening to, but um, what so far is the greatest horror movie of all time? Oh, sure. So just to give some context, we put out an episode every week and we are going chronologically. We've done, our most recent episode on Creature of the Black Lagoon uh, was episode 168. Okay. And so in that time, uh, weekly episodes coming out every Wednesday, uh, we've moved from 1895 to 1954. Wow. And our number one film on the list is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, uh, okay. which stars Frederick March in the dual role. Um, and that was episode 27. And that has sat at the top of the list since 1931 uh for 140 some episodes so it'll be exciting to see what eventually knocks it down but yeah i'm pretty solid since then that's impressive huh i haven't seen that one Um, it's really good but it's a little hard to um find because 
to the best of my knowledge, it's not like widely available streaming. I mean, one of the worst things yeah. about the streaming world that we live in is when Netflix and all these shows, you know, all these services um, came out, we all thought, oh, you know, the film history is going to be opened up for us now. And what it really is replicated is like blockbuster video. Yeah. Um, I think you can rent it on, you know, iTunes okay. and, and YouTube and stuff for like five bucks. But the, the reason why I think why it's still at the top is um, it's from 1931. And in America in 1934, um, Hollywood introduced something called the production code, yes. which yeah. was, you know, designed to control content in Hollywood films so that the studios wouldn't have to spend a lot of money um, cutting their films for individual states censor boards. Um, And also they wouldn't have to deal with, you know, the Catholic Legion of Decency and and stuff like that. And so that was in control from 1934 to around 1967 and Jekyll and Hyde predates it. Um, And so it's able to go a little bit more, um, a little darker and a little harsher than yeah, yeah. some later classic horror is able to go. Um, in fact, the movie has so much stuff that would later not be allowed under the code that they, um, rather than re-release it after the code was instituted, they just remade it. There's a yeah, Spencer yeah. Tracy version from 1941 um, yeah. that was made instead of doing a release. There were a lot of movies that that happened to. That mm-hmm. They made before the code, and then they wanted to re-release them, but they couldn't, so they remade. I think the the Maltese Falcon. Okay, was I was just going to bring up the Maltese Falcon. If you ever see the original Maltese Falcon, it's um, it's really interesting how much more openly sexual uh, yeah. that movie is able to be with its content. And I think in between the original and the Humphrey Bogart version, they remade it as like a romantic comedy. That's right, uh, Satan Mary Lady with uh, <laughs> Betty Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, golden age Hollywood. You're so weird. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, we should probably get going on what we're actually supposed to be talking about. Yeah, because if if you get me going on golden age Hollywood, you're going to be here a while. And I don't think we're going to be able to scoot back on the topic very easily. Yeah, one of my um, one of my undergrad degrees uh, is in film studies, and okay. the cla- a lot of the classes I took were on like horror and pre code cinema and stuff. So this is like this is a blast from the past for me. <laughs> I I don't use my degree much anymore, but it's it's, uh, it's always fun to. Yeah, that's this. that's uh, my bachelor is is special film studies. So uh, special film studies, bachelor of film studies. Oh, bachelor of film studies. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. All right. All right. Well, you are. Among other things, the first Canadian guest I've had on the show. Oh, um, is it true that the plague hasn't reached you yet? Is the safe zone real? <laughs> no, we've got we've got the pandemic, but we uh, we don't have it in your numbers. And I mean, for a while it was well, but America has uh, the greater population density. Yeah, which is, yeah. is still true, of course. But even accounting for population density, um, you know, we flattened our curve. And uh, I'm in Alberta. And Alberta is a a Canadian province that is probably best described as the closest thing Canada has to Texas. Um, (laughs) I've actually heard that. I can't remember where I heard that, but yeah. We're an oil-driven economy and uh, our politics tend to skew conservative. And so we had, you know, but even then um, we have testing available for everyone in the province. We have, uh, I think it's something like 500 beds to every confirmed case available we have our ventilators we have you know everything available so we did have our spikes our second spikes of course after we reopened um but we we in the time that we were closed down our healthcare system spent its time building up infrastructure so that now that we're open again 
the infrastructure can handle it. Yeah. Um, so no, we we've we've got the uh, pandemic here, we've got the plague, but we um we we you know are just being conscientious, and uh, we instituted mandatory masks in public spaces at the start of the month, and uh, you know we're we're doing our part to to stop the spread, right? So, and I, I assume since it's Canada, people aren't like pulling guns on the Walmart greeters that tell them to put masks on. Or... Not commonly. Um, <laughs> that being said, we did have uh, a gentleman who was um, shot and killed in an uh, altercation with police on the East coast over wearing a mask in oh, wow. a, uh, in a store um, yeah. that sort of turned into like a running chase thing that just oh, wow. really went way out of control. Um, but those sort of incidences, I would say, are not the norm. Um, <laughs> that said, I think it is, you know, again, important to stress that Alberta, where I am, is more akin to, I would say, um, those kind of sensibilities than the Canadian stereotype that yeah, yeah. Americans might have. Um so you I guys haven't... shoot people and then say sorry, right? Is that how it works? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we don't commonly shoot people, but we still, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's that's, that's tough to make jokes about. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it is something where there are people who are still jerks about it, right? Yeah, sure. And that's just yeah. a, a certain degree of that is human nature. People were jerks about seatbelts. People were jerks about right. airbags. Yeah. Um, the thing that we have you know, in Alberta that I think is common to anyone who's grown up in uh, Texas or in a like rural um, Republican leaning community or something in the United States is um, a very strong individualism Mm -hmm. value system. Uh, So a strong amount of, you know, uh, I can take care of myself. Um, I don't need to rely on other people, uh, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, And so, that's, I think, behind a lot of people's reluctance to wear a mask or, or you know, do some of these other things is because nobody wants to admit that they, they need, that society is a society and that we all work in it together, right? Sure, sure. Well, that seems like a pretty good segue to what we're supposed to be talking about, <laughs> um, which is UBI, the universal basic income, which seems mm-hmm. like a very Canadian topic to talk about. <laughs> Um, it's definitely associated in my head with Canada because I know some of the biggest studies on it have been conducted there. Um, here in the States, we did have Andrew Yang briefly arguing for it when the Democratic primary was still going on, but he, needless to say, did not last long in the primary. Um, am I assuming, right, that you, we haven't talked about this yet? You changed your mind from being against it to for it? or That's correct. Oh, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because I feel like I personally... I personally am intrigued by the idea and think it's probably a good idea, but I'm also open to the possibility that there's some horrible downside I haven't considered. Um, so I'll be really interested to um, discuss this with you. Um, yeah. So why don't we um, why don't we just start at the beginning? Tell me why you were originally, uh, or, or maybe maybe let's start by defining UBI. Would would you care to define UBI for the listeners? Oh, sure. So I mean, if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the idea of universal basic income. So it's, and I think, you know, if you haven't thought about it before, I expect you might go on a very similar journey that I went on as you listen to the episode, because when you first start to talk about it, especially if you are from the United States uh, or, or any kind of Western capitalist country, um, at, at first, the concept, I think, sounds really um, pie in the sky, sort of 
wooshy wooshy kind of new agey commie pinko nonsense because the idea is that the government's handing you money the idea is is to i mean to put it in a really simplistic um form to say it in a really uh uh, diminutive way it's it's almost the idea is everyone's on welfare everybody's getting a check from the government um regardless and there are different versions of it that have been proposed like there's there's you know there's just kind of this idea of like just enough money to get everyone above the poverty line or there's you know more radical proposals have been like enough to like feed a family of four or whatever Mm -hmm. you know um and then there's there's also been debates over like does it keep coming if you are yeah, how do you how do you qualify yeah. who should be on it etc but i mean right. the you in it should be implying that it's for everybody Universal, right it's, yeah. it's 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 the same as you know i think in that way it's the same as the idea of universal health care and when we talk about who should get it and when we're talking about it's similar to the way that universal health care gets diluted right down right. to well maybe it's just for these people but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in its at its core the idea is that everybody's getting it Um, Right. And that's what makes it a valuable idea. Once you start putting caveats on it, then it is just social assistance. Right. And that's a different story entirely. Sure. So why don't we talk about your story then? Um, Why don't we start at the beginning? Just tell us when and why you (laughs) were against it. Sure. So to give some context, um, I am 30 years old and I have lived and worked and grown up in Calgary, Alberta my entire life. And as I was saying earlier, um, the culture here is definitely a culture of self-reliance. It's a cowboy (laughs) mentality. Nobody here is a cowboy, by the way. If you come here, nobody's a cowboy. We all just like to pretend we are, right? You're going to (laughs) see some of you. Some of you are Mounties, right? That's kind (laughs) of. But I mean, you're going to see. Yeah, no, no. There, I mean, there are probably legitimate. You know, there are people who own ranches. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it's the same kind of posturing that you see in, I don't know, a lot of places where the culture gets tied to a certain image, right? So you'll come here and people are wearing their Stetson hats and they're driving their Ford F-150s and they like to pretend that they're big rugged guys, but then they go home to their, uh, you know, mansions because they're actually a white collar oil worker, right? <laughs> they're, yeah, they work in an office downtown in the, the Petrocanada building, right? So like, um, you know, and, and the, the, the truck is for show. Um, so the reason I bring that up though is, to sort of paint a picture of the the value system that I grew up in, sure. right? Which is a value system that very much is about taking care of yourself and being self-reliant. Um, now, I mean, it's, it's Canada. So, you know, I grew up with socialized healthcare and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff my entire life. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, so it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, make it clear, you know, the degree, because I think from an American perspective, it's either one or the other, right? There's such a, you're, you're either a Republican over here or you're a Democrat over here. And, and the entire Canadian political system is maybe shifted a Mm -hmm. little bit, right? Our, our conservatives are more centrist. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm 30 years old and with the exception of a four year stretch two years ago, um, a conservative government's been in power in this province my entire life. Hmm. Um, and so growing up, the idea of something like universal, I mean, I never even thought the idea is absurd, right? I, I never even thought about it until I was in university. Yeah. Uh, if yeah. you had brought it up to me at any previous time in my life, it would have sounded absurd. The idea that the government's just going to hand people free money. Right. Right. It's, <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw the, the, uh, 
the Tim Burton Batman film, you know, with uh-huh. Jack Nicholson, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the end of that movie is the Joker gives people free money and, and <laughs> they all run out into the crowd and then he gasses them. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so you know, handing out people free money, that's what villains do. Right. <laughs> I mean, um, but personally, I've never been, um, what would you call it? I guess socially conservative. Okay. Uh, I've always had very um, socially liberal values, um, but there was a good stretch of my life where I was just simply raised to believe that fiscal conservatism was correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Capitalism is correct. Um, small government, that kind of stuff, right? I'm curious then um, as to how you felt when you were younger about since you brought it up, the uh, socialized healthcare system. That was just normal. I mean, yeah. you didn't you didn't question it. Nobody right. here questions it. I mean, even even now, you know, our current provincial government is sort of trying to start to sort of introduce the idea of maybe privatizing yeah. some healthcare stuff. Yeah. Um, there's been a, a law passed recently where now um, a private com- private companies are allowed to run clinics. Okay. And it's hugely unpopular. Yeah. Like we've had socialized medicine here so long that I don't think people even think about it yeah. in terms of, you know, this is some evil commie garbage uh, <laughs> because we've had it. Like I grew up and that's just the way it was. It was something that you, you were raised to be proud of. Yeah. You know, the, the way that I think Canadians are raised through their school system is here is we're raised to believe it's something that makes us better than you. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm serious. There's a lot of when you, you know, I think as a country um, in terms of a national identity, you know, America bases has all these national identifiers, um, freedom and democracy and bald eagles and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the red, white and blue and 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 baseball and, and this kind of stuff. And most Canadian national identifiers are about identifying why we're not you guys. <laughs> and a big one is the socialized medicine thing. Right. So, so socialized medicine and Tim Hortons. basically. Right. Yeah. And and <laughs> um, and and not spending uh, an exorbitant amount of GDP on on military budgets and, and things like this. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's that's kind of one of the, the inherent contradictions is, at least from an American perspective, is to have socialized medicine. And, and I mean, when I was growing up, we had um, the telephone companies were crown corporations, which means okay. that they were government owned. Sure. Um, now they're privatized uh, and they're crooks. Um, but at the time they were, they were provincially run. Um, and yet we still had a conservative government. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's, it's a little bit of a different milieu, I guess. Absolutely. Um, but I first heard about seriously, first seriously heard people talking about universal basic income when I was in university. And my, Mm -hmm. my gut reaction was that it was some, some real hippie nonsense. (laughs) <laughs> and part of that might have been because the people who were talking to me about it were people who I also kind of had written off as being some real <laughs> nonsense hippies. Yeah. Um, but it, it didn't seem to make any sense just mm-hmm. on the face of it. Why would you do it? Why would you institute it um, other than as and, and I think you guys, you know, you probably have heard this argument against. It. I think the most common argument that you'll hear against it is the idea of, well, people wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's just a reward to be lazy. Mm-hmm. Right. And that um, nobody would go to work. So nobody would be working any jobs. So there'd be no economy so that, you know, the whole system would just break down. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that was my initial reaction to it, too, is like, well, why would we, you know, give money to people for no reason? And also, wouldn't that cause massive inflation? Sure. Right. Because the whole idea behind universal basic income um, really 
if you want to break it down, is that like money is a, a fiction. Right. Right. Like money doesn't exist. I mean, at least not since Nixon, you know, took you off the gold standard. Right. <laughs> money doesn't exist. It's a thing that you make up. And um, I think where you stand on universal basic income comes down to what you think that made of concept represents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I was in university, um, I probably would have described my political views as libertarian. Okay. Um, which I don't know if that's just a phase that everybody goes through when they're like 20, <laughs> 21 years old. Um, but I knew that the first time they yeah. pick up a Rand book until. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I, I mean, I've got somewhere around here. I've got Atlas shrugged on the shelf. I've got the fountainhead on the shelf. I've read Ayn Rand. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's easy to see the appeal. Hmm. Uh, if you're a certain kind of person, um, myself, like growing up, I, uh, I'm not a religious person. Uh, sure. I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm a very intellectually based person. Um, if you want to appeal to me, you appeal to reason, uh, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And everything in, you know, Ayn Rand, for instance, is, is argued out based on that premise. It's, right. it's based on that idea. But the ethics of Rand are based on the idea of, um, I would say, a concept of money as a reward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, we, we, when we talk about money and what it's what it's for, from the from a Rand perspective, from an objectivist perspective, the idea is that you you know you do something. You're a musician. You're a politician. You're a writer. You're a janitor. You're a whatever. Mm -hmm. And based on what you do, you are contributing to society or what have you in some degree, and you are being rewarded for your work in the form of money. And then you spend that money on whatever you want. But um, the notion of money as a reward means that if you start to consider the idea of giving someone money for no reason at all, it makes no sense. <laughs> so if you look at objectivist values or libertarian values or, or any kind of value systems that spin out of the idea that money is a reward, mm -hmm. then UBI makes no sense at all. And, and, and you hear, you know, and, and then the idea, well, okay, this is just going to make people lazy. It's going to make them indolent, et cetera. It, it makes sense because if, if money is a reward for doing things and you're just getting given it, why would you bother with doing anything? Sure, right. Sure. And the problem is, is that's a very top down view of money, hmm. right? Yeah, um, you're, you're looking at, again, money's fictional. So what does it represent? Um, and if, if the idea is that it's a reward, okay. But the problem is, is that it's, it, 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 let's, let's compare it to something like, uh, like video game, right? Okay. So you, you, you play a video game and you, you earn something it's XP or it's, uh, you know, gems or it's what have you. And then you go and you spend that in the game store to, you know, buy a new costume or a new hat for your character or what have you. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, Okay, so that's a reward. Mm -hmm. The problem with money is that it's not a reward. That's not what our society uses it for, mm -hmm. um, because our society also uses it as a cost of entry to playing the game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you don't have money, you can't afford rent, and you can't afford food, and you can't... Eventually, you just die, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I think I'm getting ahead of myself 
a little bit. <laughs> a bit, yeah. Let's um, before we move on, just for um, I want to talk about your uh, former beliefs just for a yeah. minute or two. Um, yeah, absolutely. One of the questions I like to ask people on this show is, and I, you know, I've said this before, I don't necessarily agree with the premise here, um, but I know some people do, and I know it's an interesting question, so I want to poke at it. Which is these original beliefs? Beliefs? Did you hold them for what you would call more quote unquote logical reasons or more emotional reasons? And it sounds like. At least at first, at, the, at least at the time, you would have said logical. Is that is that something you would stand by, or I think probably at the time, yes. But I also think that most people like to think that they believe things for logical reasons. <laughs> that's right? been my that's been my experience. Yeah, and, it's, um... <laughs> and you have to kind of drill down on yourself a bit to realize when the things that you believe are tied more to emotion than to reason, because I think everybody likes to think that they're being rational about things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I also think that at least for me personally, there wasn't a moment here where I suddenly had a come to God moment and entirely changed my entire outlook on life. Mm -hmm. Um, It, it, you know, I'm still that person. I'm just a different version of that person. Right. And so when you have things that change your mind, I think they, come in small doses and, and little things happen over time. And it, it becomes, you know, like the, the snowball going down the hill. Eventually it's big enough that you go, Oh yeah, that's definitely there. But at, at the start, it's very small. Sure. Um, I, I think originally when I was, I would say against the concept of universal basic income, I would say it was from a, at the time, a logical position of the fact that, well, but if you're just printing money for people, you're going to cause inflation and then that's going to devalue the dollar. And that's going to mean that you're going to have to print more money for people. And you're just going to create, uh, you know, an economic, um, uh, sinkhole mm-hmm. and you're going to devalue jobs. You're going to de-incentivize people from getting work and all of these other things. But mm-hmm. also there's a definite core emotional thing there too, which is we all work really hard mm-hmm. for the money that we get. Oh yeah, sure. And, I think this is also part of why people are against welfare too, mm-hmm. it is you go out there, you work, you know, at the time when I was, um, you know, if you want to talk about ironies, uh, here I am talking about how I was um, reading Rand and, and espousing objectivism and things. At the time I was working as um, an addictions counselor uh, uh-huh. at a, uh, a uh, detox center. Oh, wow. uh, that was what I did to put myself through university. So I was working 12 to 14 hour days. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and I say days, I mostly mean nights. Uh, but so you work hard, you work Mm -hmm. these long hours and you earn your money and you think I worked hard for this money and therefore it's mine and I earned it and it's fair that I should have it. And why should someone else get it for nothing? Yeah. That's a, that's an emotional response, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're not considering that other person really as a person, you're considering them as a, as if somehow them getting money takes it away from you or right. devalues the work that you did. Yeah. Neither yeah. of which is true, but it's an emotional gut response. It's that childish thing of like, well, uh, you know, if, if, you know, he gets a Nintendo, then the Nintendo I have is less special somehow, <laughs> right? Which is nonsense. I like how everything's a video game metaphor. I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> easy metaphor to go to. It's true. It's true. Um, well, why don't we um, why don't we move on then? Because it feels like you're itching to go there. Um, which is what um, led you to question your original views? So I think it was a slow, gradual process. Sure. Because certainly, I remember having arguments with people. I remember having arguments with people against the concept, 
And I think a big part of why I was against it is I just didn't understand. Again, it came from having a different starting value point, Mm -hmm. right? So you have a different initial value system. I don't know if you're ever going to be able to come to an agreement on it because if you do view money as a reward and you're arguing with someone who views money differently as a necessity, Mm -hmm you're not going to come to an agreement. Um, and I think what changed my mind was quite honestly, um, the, the, the economic downturn mm-hmm. of, of the past, I don't know, God, I guess 20 years now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and seeing the scarcity of jobs and seeing the way that the economy changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the biggest thing there was, looking at the way that in times of you know economic downturn right what do what do corporations do they downsize they lay people off right right yeah and and it's not because there's anything wanting about their work it's just right. because the money's not there to right. pay them yeah right and if you look at the economic trends of it you know look it, it's hard to talk about any one one thing because it's all interrelated i mean really it's 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 hard for me to pry things out sometimes from other things uh Mm -hmm. without taking a look at everything holistically but um if we can if we if we zoom out for a second right and we look at the um the economy from a, a zoomed out perspective um there aren't any manufacturing jobs right mm-hmm I mean, Donald Trump can talk about bringing back factories and bringing back the coal mines and bringing back all these things. It doesn't matter. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the reason for that is uh, ultimately we've replaced people in a lot of those positions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, why bring people into those jobs when we've got automation or we can outsource or what have you? Um, mm-hmm. Modern, you know, modern labor laws make it uh, inefficient to to hire people to build cars instead of robots. Right. Um, in our grandparents' generation, if you had a university degree, holy shit, you were laughing, <laughs> right? Like yeah. I'm going to get yeah. a big city job. I'm going to have a car and a house in the suburbs. And me, the one person with an income in this home, I'm going to provide for my spouse and my two kids. And I'm going to have my, my two cars and my, you know, house in the suburbs and everything on this one salary that I got from having a university degree. And all the people with just high school diplomas, well, they're going to go work in the factory and they're going to have enough money even for them to have, you know, a spouse and, and a kid and, and provide for the family. And, you know, the difference is, is, you know, I'll have a color TV and he won't. <laughs> right. And then you, you fast forward a few years. Well, um, now, you know, when, when I was growing up, the line was, well, you had to have a university degree to just get a job mm-hmm. period. Right. If you, mm-hmm. if you didn't have one, well, you're going to end up pumping gas. <laughs> at the gas well, Luke, when was the last time you saw someone pumping gas at a gas station? Because <laughs> I can't recall. It's all self-serve now, ain't it? Not or, in New Jersey or Oregon, but <laughs> yeah, everywhere else. <laughs> or, 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 oh, you know, you you drop out of school, you're going to end up taking people's orders at McDonald's. Well, yeah. when was the last time someone took your order at McDonald's? Because I walk up and there's a touchscreen now. <laughs> so the thing is, is now, you know, my my university degree didn't get me a job. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, if you want a job from your 
education, you better be getting a law degree or a, a, a engineering degree or a, a medical degree or something like that. Yeah. Well, you can't build a society <laughs> out of lawyers and engineers and doctors. <laughs> you can't just say, well, you know, everyone's going to be a lawyer, an engineer or a doctor. For one thing, you need other jobs for people right. to do. And for another, not everybody's suited to it. So what's happened is as jobs have gotten more and more scarce because of outsourcing, globalization, mechanization, industrialization, what have you, um, the barrier to entry to getting employment is, you know, higher and higher, right? You know, people coming at, you know, I, I, I worked as um, a manager of a retail electronics store in a mall in my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. And I had people coming at me with three page resumes about, you know, how they did this volunteering and they had these diplomas and they had like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, and it's an arms race of like, right, yeah. Right. So what, so at a certain point, you know, when you, you can't have a society that's made up entirely of geniuses working as lawyers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, 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 the problem becomes, okay, well, what do you do with people who, who, you know, aren't going to go to university or aren't going to get those jobs. And, and the low skill jobs that used to exist either don't exist or they've become extremely devalued, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where we look at um, the way that minimum wage has not risen right. in decades. When minimum wage as a concept was first introduced, the idea was supposed to be, well, this is the minimum wage you need to make a living. Right. Right. The idea was that if I was working a minimum wage job, I could have my own place and pay my rent and buy my food and live. And it's I'd not probably even buy for a family as well. Right. Yes. Right. And it's yeah. not even close to that. Right. Now what has, what, what it's morphed into is this idea that minimum wage jobs are for teens, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. and, and kids and, and recent immigrants and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I've had conversations with people where they say, well, you know, we shouldn't be paying, you know, someone working at McDonald's or something more than, you know, I, I don't know what, what's the minimum wage in Wisconsin. Oh gosh! I mean, nationally in the U.S., it's seven twenty-five an hour still. Oh, yeah, Christ. yeah, it's it's <laughs> tiny. It's like nothing. Okay. I, it it has not risen in the U.S. since I think nineteen ninety-eight was the last time minimum wage wage went up. Lord, um, and there are, there are some states that have a higher minimum wage, but I don't think Wisconsin is. So, good God, yeah, okay, seven twenty-five an hour. What even is that? Yeah, I mean, I'm if if you, if you work twenty four seven for seven twenty five an hour, you probably still couldn't afford rent on an apartment. It's <laughs> right. so it's, minimum uh, wage in, in Alberta is fifteen dollars an hour, wow. uh, and that's and that's Canadian. So fifteen yeah. Canadian is uh, eleven eleven twenty one U.S. Okay, yeah. Um, so that's what you're looking at there, right? And a living wage in Calgary, where I live, is about eighteen dollars. Mm -hmm. So we're still not at any kind of parody there. But mm -hmm. the point I'm getting at is we expect like, oh yeah, well that's the job you take during the summer or after school as a high school student, mm -hmm. which of course is why McDonald's is only open from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Monday <laughs> through Friday, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so as these, the low paying jobs or the low skill jobs are going away, well now, like you just said, you have to work 24 seven. Okay. Well now we have people who are working two to three minimum wage jobs at once Yeah, yeah. to provide for a family. Well, that's absurd. And it's only going to get worse mm -hmm. because yeah. as you have increased, and this is the thing that really changed my mind 
on universal income is there no corporation ever has any incentive to spend more on its labor right if you go to business school if you have a business degree you will know that the number one controllable expense that your business has is labor mm -hmm. right you can't you know you can't change how much certain things cost right if you're mcdonald's i'm gonna keep harping on them because they're an easy example <laughs> uh meat you know costs so much right? Right, right you have ingredients that you need to pay for right mm -hmm. and then your equipment costs so much and building the darn restaurant costs so much but your labor is a cost you can control and if you're a publicly traded corporation you have a responsibility to deliver 10% growth in your profits year over year to your shareholders, right? So if you've got ever increasing need for profit infinitely, and you've got your costs that you can't really change that are going to go up year over year. Well, if you aren't showing profit, then you have to cut costs, right? Mm. To create profit. And the easiest thing to cut is, is labor. Right. So you have no incentive. There's no incentive to spend more money on labor unless you have something forcing you to, like a union or government regulation or something. Um, and so if you follow that trend forward into the future, if you're a company and you're being told, well, you could hire people or you could have this app, <laughs> you're going to go with the app. Yeah. yeah. Right. You're going to cost cut those costs as much as you can, have as little people in the pipeline as you can. And so what do those people do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because at a certain point, no matter how conservative your values are and how much you believe that, you know, a dollar earned for, you know, uh, you, you need to work for every dollar and, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and all that kind of stuff. At a certain point, if there's no work, then people can't afford their rent and they can't afford their food. And so you're just saying, well, then people who can't become lawyers or engineers or doctors just have to die. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the problem with that. Uh, then there's no one to pay the lawyers or the engineers or the doctors. Right. Right. Oh, no, no, one, no one to clean the lawyers and doctors toilets. toilets. No yeah. one to make the Big Macs the lawyers and doctors want to eat. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, this is the thing, right? So, so your society, societies are always going to have a hierarchy of some kind. Mm -hmm. Even a even a, a you know communist society has has a hierarchy of some kind. If you if you just it, it that might be economic, that might be social, that might be but it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. And in American western capitalist society that hierarchy's been largely based around economic class, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is is it doesn't have to be Hmm. Right. Like capitalism isn't a we weren't born with it. Right. Hmm. I mean, it's not. Uh, we've had other economic systems mm -hmm. throughout history and we're going to have to come up with a new one um, right. because this one's going to stop working for us very, very shortly because we are barreling forward thanks to technology towards a point where those low paying, low skilled jobs aren't going to exist. Yeah. And we yeah. need something for people to do. And so that's when you come to this idea of universal basic income. Universal basic income isn't a, a fix to capitalism. Mm -hmm. What it is, is it's a, uh, a stopgap. It's mm -hmm. a bridge because you can't just say, well, we're going to get rid of 
money and we're going to get rid of corporations and we're going to get rid of uh, supply lines and, and social hierarchies and um, different tax brackets. And we're just going to level everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you can't do that without um, the expectation that that's going to cause um, upheavals to a degree that you, you ultimately don't want. Yeah. Um, so you need things that will cushion that transition. Mm-hmm. And that transition doesn't have to happen overnight. It doesn't have to happen over a few years. It can it can be a very slow process, but you need to have those cushions to mm-hmm. to bring it back to the example of the pandemic. Um, where I live, we closed everything down, and then we built some infrastructure. We opened things back up. Our cases came back, but now we have this infrastructure. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Versus certain places I could name, ending in Orida. <laughs> where you closed everything down and then you sat on your asses for three months and then you opened everything up and you went, huh, everyone, oh gosh, people are still dying. What's going on? Right. So you, if you want to cause a great social change, you need to have some sort of transitionary measures. Well, UBI is a great transitionary measure because the idea behind it is you're paying everyone a base income to live. Mm-hmm. Well, once people's rent and groceries and basic needs are taken care of, Suddenly, that idea of money as being a reward for services rendered or, or whatever makes sense again. Right. Because yeah. you, you don't need it just to play the game anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you know, nobody, I don't think very, I think very few people campaigning for universal basic income are saying that UBI should replace income. Right. Right. Nobody's saying that a doctor a brain surgeon should make the same amount as a janitor. Mm-hmm. Now we can argue about how much more a brain surgeon should make than a janitor, yeah. but I don't think anybody's saying it needs to be the same amount. But the idea is, is that if we all have our basic needs taken care of, well, what, what could we do mm-hmm. with our time? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much, how much could we accomplish when we didn't have to worry about that? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what could we go on to do? Yeah. Um, because now, you know, you can take that year off to write that book you've been meaning to write or, uh, you know, um, and if you do, you know, and, or you don't have to work that job you don't want to work. Right. Because you don't have to take that shit from your boss because (laughs) if you quit, you're not going to be homeless. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is the same idea behind, you know, UBI. I think, I think universal basic income and universal healthcare need to kind of walk hand in hand in a lot of ways because Mm. the other thing that you have is well you need to keep your job or else if you get sick you'll die right yeah right you can't afford to go to the hospital because a a, a checkup is three grand or whatever i have no idea (laughs) yes (laughs) the 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 price for american healthcare stuff is is so um it it, honestly every time i see it it seems like fiction i I, I honestly i I can't fathom it and i live here man like it makes no Um, sense yeah, oh. I, I I can't understand it. So, uh, but but the, the point <laughs> is, is that you see people who like are trapped in in really shitty jobs because they don't have any other options. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you would have options if you didn't need that to live. And if you go back, like, it hasn't always been that you needed to have a job to live. Hmm. Right. This 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 cultural idea, this American Protestant work ethic thing of that, like if you don't go to work and suffer every day, you don't deserve to, to draw breath. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is is not a universal idea. And I think that was something that personally I had to get myself past was mm-hmm. the notion of. 
your worth being really defined by that. And, yeah. and that you didn't, you know, like, like I, think I, I think I have some answers to this, but for the benefit of listeners, could you give an <laughs> example of like a historic culture where you didn't have to work to stay alive? Well, <laughs> well, well let's go back to like, I mean, you know, we don't have to go very far away, but let's go sure. to European feudalism. Okay. Right. So the economic system there is uh, you live on land that is not owned by you that's owned by a feudal lord right and right. you work that land mm -hmm. and you draw crops from it or what have you and uh you have food that you live off of because mm. you farmed it and then you pay taxes up to your feudal lord mm -hmm. right and you sell your wares um you know maybe you also you know spin cotton or whatever in your in, as well on a, on the side sure. but here's the thing um nobody's like paying you okay right like an hourly wage right you're not getting a paycheck from the lord right the but deal is time, you don't work the land you starve to death so well well <laughs> but you don't need money uh-huh right? right you yeah. you live on that land and the deal is you make food and you're allowed to live there. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you do need to work to live. Sure. But it's not about, it's not about money. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not about, um, a paycheck that's coming down to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you don't work that day, nothing happens mm -hmm. to you. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, we've had very different economic systems sure. through history. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, in uh, again, in like a European feudal system, for instance, um, you know, you have your your blacksmith or your you know, people who had trades. Right. Right. And. You. You know, what was going to kill you was the, the plague. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like it wasn't this like nine to five Monday to Friday thing. Right. Right. You woke up when you wanted to wake up, you did your work for the day and mm -hmm. you stopped and you ate and yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and nobody said, well, you know, you can't access a doctor because it's not covered for you through your, through your work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you had a culture where, it was much more, I, I mean, the difference is, is, and the reason why we can't have this anymore is because you had a culture that was based around a different level of, of um, organization, right? Mm -hmm. Which was, you know, a county or whatever level of organization, right? Which you can't really have anymore. Um, and then, of course, you, you know, you look at non-Western cultures, you're going to have it find tons of examples. But the the I think the through line through all of them is that society and culture is about people coming together and working together to survive. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we come back to this idea of, well, who deserves to live, who deserves to die. And, and when did we decide that money was the thing that determined that? Yeah. Um, because I, I, it's, it's very difficult for me to even wrap my head around the idea of like, well, if you aren't making money, you should die. <laughs> But that's the logical conclusion, yeah. Right to the capitalist idea, sure. Um, that the idea that we have to work to kind of prove that we're worth 
keeping alive. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, and, I want to push back on that for a second. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, I like I'm not a right winger. I'm not yeah. committed to yeah. capitalism, but I feel like I know what the answer would be if I mm-hmm. were, mm-hmm. Um, which is like the, the answer would be like, I'm not opposed to helping people who need help. Right. I just don't think the government should do it. Right. I think charity should be a private. Right. 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 And yeah. Yeah. The answer to that. Well, and the thing is, is then we're talking about personal choice, right. Which is a big, um, conservative value point. Right. And, right. and again, like I grew up in a, a place where personal choice is very much, you know, a, a treasured value, um, rugged individualism. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've seen that charities don't work and, mm-hmm. and that that whole idea breaks down because we've got people today who are richer, you know, by proportion mm-hmm. than anyone's ever been on, on in the history of money. Right. 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 To an absurd degree. And so why do we still have any social problems whatsoever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at all? Yeah. Right. And it's, and it's because, you know, okay, if we put it on charity to solve all these problems, well, if it's all up to personal choice, then people just choose not to do it, hmm. right? Yeah. Because the other thing about the human mind, you know, I talked earlier about, well, he has an, you know, if I, if he has a Nintendo, then my Nintendo isn't as special or whatever, right? <laughs> that kind of pettiness. Yeah. Um, yeah. That pettiness continues no matter how rich you get, mm-hmm. right? And and they've, they've done studies that show that, you know, the human mind can't really process the difference between like $300,000 and $3 billion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So it's just, it's mine and I should keep it. But um, the thing about taxation is taxation is just, it's the Patreon version of charity. <laughs> All right. So, so what's the advantage of Patreon versus Kofi or something like that? Right. Like the fact that people commit to give you a certain amount every month. Right. Yeah. Or if you're a user, right. If you're a pay, if you're not, uh, not the, the person receiving the money, but giving the money, mm-hmm. you know, for me, the advantage of supporting someone's Patreon is that I can set it and forget it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I walk away. That's taxes versus a charity, mm-hmm. basically. And we all, you know, and taxes is just we all agreed that, hey, if we all just pitched in a little, we can have nice things. Sure. Right. And the the idea that it's bad for the government to be doing it is is a, a strange one because it only that that line of argument only really makes sense if you view the world in the sense of the government is a different thing than the society it provides for. Mm-hmm. And that's wild to me. The government is the society, hmm. right? So if you think that people should support the less fortunate, well, okay, what's a really efficient way of doing that, right? Rather than me, Mr. Moneybanks, having to go around and pull up my wallet and say, well, here's a fiver to you and here's a tenner to you. And, you know, I'll set up this charitable organization over here and fill out a bunch of paperwork and then it'll do this and that and the other thing, right? Yeah. Like, well, what if we just set up one organization and we all just put some money into it and then it doled it out to people who needed it? Mm-hmm. Oops, that's a government, right? <laughs> like, so, so it, this idea that it's, you know, where did this idea that it's inherently bad that it's coming from the government come from? And and if our taxes aren't for supporting us, what are they for? Hmm. 
Yeah. Like, 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 like this idea that like, well, I don't want my taxes going towards helping, you know, these people, they should help themselves or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, like, you know, it's insurance, right? Mm-hmm. It's insurance. If you believe in insurance, you should believe in taxes because they're the same thing. It's, it's, you pay into it. And then when you need it, it's there for you. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to poke at that a little bit though, oh, yeah. uh, because I see a potential contradiction there. Um, <laughs> Which is the, this idea that, you know, on the one hand, you're saying, you know, like, given the option, the average person will choose not to give to charity, which is probably true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'll grant that. Um, how do you, uh, how, how are you drawing a distinction between that and the criticism of UBI that's like, given the option, the average person will choose not, not to, to work? work? Yeah. Like, what's, what's, the, what's the distinction there? Well, people on average won't give to charity because... I think for two reasons. One is, I mean, I mean, basically because of that thing I was talking about earlier where we want to keep on, keep what we have worked for, you know, mm-hmm. this is mine, right? I worked hard for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we feel we have extra, right? people will give, right? Like, but the problem is, is that you need to support a social structure, right? Mm-hmm. An entire society. You need people giving to charity and consistent. It, it, you know, if you want to say the world's going to run on charity, well, then people need to be giving to charity in consistent, continual, reliable, constant amounts. Okay. Right. Rather than just like, well, here's my extra five bucks when I feel like I have it. Right. Yeah, here's right. me giving my extra change to the to the you know uh, when I've got some on me. Right. Now, if you talk about the idea of, well, people will stop working. Well, will some people stop working? Probably. Yes. You know, I mean, but how do you define work? Right. So if you define work as going to a job and having an employer and and that kind of thing, well, maybe, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but like, so for example, for me, I, I, I'm a writer Mm -hmm. and most of what, my income comes from is stuff that I sell online. I write, uh, you know, um, I'll write like, uh, right now, most of what I do is actually uh, tabletop role gaming, role play gaming. Oh, cool. Uh, so I write stuff to sell online for people to play Dungeons and Dragons and, and that kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. um, well, so none of that pays enough for me to live. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, to me, it's what I do for work. Right. Or the podcast is work. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't make any money on the podcast. I mean, we have a Patreon. <laughs> so I suppose I make money, but I don't, you know, yeah. make money. It's not enough <laughs> to live on. Yeah. Um, I think how many people, you know, would be happy and fulfilled if they could devote themselves to their, you know, their needlepoint or their, uh, uh, whatever creative hobbies they have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think the idea that on UBI people would just sit around and watch Netflix all day is, is absurd because at the end of the day, people, human beings seek out purpose in their lives and they seek out things to give their lives purpose and they seek out activities and they seek out ways to give meaning to what they do. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've chosen to devalue some of those things because they don't involve getting a a T4 from an employer at the end of the year. Right. Right. Um, right. I think that people, you know, still want to work. They just, there might be some types of jobs that might suddenly find that they have to change the way they do things if they want people to work for them. 
Right. You know, I talked about earlier about, um, you know, you wouldn't have to put up with so much shit from your boss if you didn't feel like you were forced to be there. Yeah. Well, the flip side of that is, okay, if everyone's on UBI, well, that didn't fix the problem we said earlier that people still need to be cleaning the toilets or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. There are still toilets that need to be cleaned, right? <laughs> well, what it means now is that if you want me to go clean toilets, you better pay me what it's worth. Right. Right. And you better treat the employees what they're worth because mm-hmm. they don't have to work for you anymore yeah. if they don't need to. So that's the other big societal shift that would occur is you would be put in a position if you were an employer to value your labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, because the question is really how many people right now are trapped in bullshit jobs? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, there's, I'm not just like throwing that word around. There's a whole book written called bullshit jobs, you know, but like telemarketing and stuff like, like selling useless supplements over the phone. Like how many people are trapped in jobs like that who could be like writing the next great symphony or the great American novel or whatever, whatever, whatever makes them happy. Right. I mean, like which really, which, which of those things really adds more value to the world, (laughs) you know, like, and not, and also when they draw a paycheck for <laughs> right and also how do we define you know what adds value to the world i think right. that we need to redefine what that what value means what 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 a person being valuable means because we define it almost solely on someone's income right now right and is that really you know i mean how many underpaid artists are there versus overpaid um you know uh police officers i don't know like like the way that we we determine people's values uh, value as a person is it's not related to how much happiness they give to other people right it's related to what job did they manage to land <laughs> right yeah yeah sure i want to talk real quick uh before we wrap up about mm-hmm basically the question of why UBI, like why not, mm-hmm. not, why not, for instance, just beef up the welfare system? Why not, mm-hmm. for instance, just, uh, you know, beef up labor unions or, or why right. not? Um, um, you know, I mean, there was a third thing in my head, but now it's gone. Um, why not? Let's do all of it. <laughs> um, but, but, but the question is, what's what's the real advantage of UBI? Um, which well, I think I have an answer to this, but I want to hear yours. So I think I think for one thing, it's if we stick with it being universal, if we stick with it being it's for everybody and everybody gets the basic amount they need to live. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and coming back to this idea of like, well, you know, what about inflation and, and, you know, what's the harm caused by the government printing money and stuff? I mean, if you want, we can skip the middle ground and make groceries free and rent free, but we're not quite there yet. Right. Mm-hmm. So for now, this is the, the middle stepping stone. Um, but if it's for everybody, then you're not creating a way for people to create gates and, and barriers and stratify it and, um, make it a way to look down on people Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like welfare theoretically is supposed to be about helping people who are on, you know, uh, who are going through a tough time. Right. Mm -hmm. And instead we've gone to great lengths to make it as inaccessible as we can mm-hmm. so that only the people who really deserve it can get yeah. on it. Right. And then the people who do get on it 
So the ones who by that logic really deserve it, who we should really be feeling sorry for, we look down on those people, mm -hmm. right? Oh, you know, they're, they're leeches on society or whatever, right? And it creates a stigma. And so then there are people who don't go on welfare because there's a stigma around it. Right. They're too proud. Right. And now I'm working eight jobs and, you know, and I, I'm an alcoholic because I can't handle it. And I have problems in my marriage because I'm never home and I'm stressed and I hate my kids because they're just draining on my money. So I need to work these eight jobs. And, you know, and, and suddenly everything spirals out of control. Mm -hmm. Right. Because there's this stigma. Well, if everybody's got it, there isn't a stigma. Right. Because it's everybody. Yeah. Right. And we don't politicize it. It doesn't become about, well, who's allowed to have it and who's not. And, you know, well, maybe we take it away from these people and, and this kind of thing. Right. If you stick with it, same with universal health care. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in in there's if you're going to do universal health care, you can't say, well, but if you're from this zip code. No. <laughs> right. Because right? that's not universal health care. Yeah. Um, and again, like universal healthcare, universal basic income, if you want access to the next level up, right? If you if you are getting your universal basic income and you're a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, well, then you're making way more money than someone and who isn't. And therefore, yeah, if you want your yacht, go get your yacht, what have you. But all it's saying is that people shouldn't be dying because there isn't a job for them. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's what it really comes down to at the end of the day. And so, you know, I think, yes, we should be beefing up the labor unions and yes, we should be beefing up the welfare system. But we also should be recognizing that our society is barreling towards uh, an era when it will be impossible to have a surf class, essentially anymore hmm. because the jobs won't be there for them mm -hmm. and we can't just say well then i guess they have to starve to death <laughs> and for once we really should give it a shot to solve a problem we see coming before it happens <laughs> just for once i mean there has um, to be a first for everything right exactly so. <laughs> exactly i mean are you know are we going to run into problems i'm sure we are but most yeah. of the studies that have been done on this have shown that people are happier and you know, less stressed out and that they don't stop going to work. Right. Right. But they're, they're just, they're just less stressed about it all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, big surprise, right? Yeah. Well, no, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree that, you know, if, if everybody is getting however, but like $12,000 a year, like, mm -hmm. you know, from the kid in the trailer park to like friggin' Jeff Bezos, just mm -hmm. check for $12,000 every year. It's like, yeah, on the one hand, there's no stigma there. It's like, okay, you deserve to exist just for being a human being. And, you know, if you don't want the money, give a charity or whatever. Sure. Um, I, I mean, the other probably, probably the other advantage there is, is that there, there's no cost, but there's basically no cost to do it, right? Like welfare systems have all this red tape, all this bureaucracy mm -hmm. that costs huge amounts. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if you heard about this in the States, several, several States um, have been like, we're going to make everybody on welfare, take a drug test every month yeah. to earn their welfare check, which yeah, it costs more. more money than yeah, it costs more than to just give them the damn money. Right. Yeah. Right. And, it's just, and yeah. It's it's with you know. <sighs> yeah. Exactly. Well, it's, 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 
That's the interesting thing to me about UBI is I've seen cases made for it by everyone from like leftists and progressives to conservatives and libertarians. Mm-hmm. And the reason it the reason it appeals to conservatives tends to be, well, it would make the welfare state that we already have like 10 times cheaper. Well, you know? and, and here's the thing. If you if you are Jeff Bezos, uh-huh. you should be in favor of UBI. Hmm. And the reason for this is. So, so I keep talking about UBI as being sort of a, a stepping stone, a middle state, sure, right? Sure. So you, you're, you're going to need it as these low-paying jobs vanish so mm-hmm. that people can keep spending money to, to pay buy for stuff. Buy stuff. <laughs> right. So here's the thing. You know, I, I talked about how, well, why don't you just cut out the middleman and make rent free and, and groceries free, sure. right? And, and maybe eventually you get there. Maybe eventually you get to a post-money economy somehow or we change – you know, the way we think about that stuff, but that's somewhere down the line before we get or outer space. It'll be right. 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 Yeah. Well, we need to get the replicator first, right. Before we can (laughs) move on to all of that, before you can get the the post scarcity economy. But, but before we get there, you know, if it's the same thing, like that, I keep being surprised that the energy companies haven't really grasped, right. Is, is like, if you're an energy, and some of them have actually, but if you're an energy company, it's in your best interests to be investing in solar and geothermal and all those other things, right? right sure. Because theoretically, you want to keep making money after you <laughs> run out of oil. Yeah. Right. Same thing here, like like Bezos, like if you keep paying your warehouse workers so little, right? Like I get that it's, I guess, earning you, you know that little sliver more million dollar per second or however much he makes. But if no one can afford to buy your crap, right. Then the whole system breaks down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's the same thing with like in, in with the pandemic, there's the big debate about should there be eviction moratoriums? Mm -hmm. Right. And you have landlords going, well, but how are we supposed to make money if no one's paying us rent? And it's like, right, but if you evict everybody, no one's paying you rent either. Anyway, yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's the same thing. Like if 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 no one has any like, is it making your company more money to lay off your staff? Yes. Mm-hmm. But then if no one's making any money, no one can pay you any money either. Mm-hmm. So by having universal basic income, you're at least putting people on an even playing ground where, you know, there's there's some kind of transfusion into the economy. And what's been really interesting about COVID-19 is that it's brought the discussion of UBI into the mainstream mm-hmm. in a way that it wasn't before. I mean, you know, in Canada, at least we're having much more serious discussions about it with mainstream politicians instead of fringe movements, mm-hmm. I think for the first time this year because of it, because everyone's looking around and, you know, I don't uh, hear the way that the federal government handled um the unemployment and everything uh, was with a program whereby um, everybody got two grand a, a month for um, 24 weeks. I think it was I think it was 15 for 18 weeks when it started, and I think they extended it and upped mm-hmm, it. But mm-hmm. regardless, the the point was was that this is what they did, right? This is what yeah. they did. If you could say, and it and it's separate from the welfare system, it's mm-hmm. separate from UI, or um, you guys call it UI still, don't you? Unemployment insurance. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we call it EI, employment insurance, because it's insurance for employment. That would make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, it's separate from that, right? So, so the idea was if you could prove that your income was. Um, negatively affected by covid you mm-hmm. could apply for this mm-hmm. and then you know the government started sending you checks and 
we looked at that and we went, hmm, you know, this isn't that hard. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, so I think the conversation is much more in the mainstream now than it used to be. I think it's probably going to be, uh, you know, unfortunately for anyone who's a supporter of the idea in the United States, I think it's going to be a very long time yeah. before <laughs> the United States gets it. Because, I mean, you know, if you want to look at it realistically, every other country in the world has gun control legislation and universal health care and flattened the curve and has the metric system. And so, you know. Yeah, we're just a never-ending tire fire here, basically. Well, there's a lot of problems that you guys look at and you throw up your hands and you go, no one could ever solve this. <laughs> and you walk away from it. But um, I would say that I think it's an inevitability. It's just how how bad do things have to get sure. before we figure it out? Because I don't, I don't see another solution mm-hmm. with the um, shrinking number of jobs available for low skill workers, the increasing number of um, roboticization of uh, services um, and the, you know, way that uh, late stage capitalism is trying, you know, everybody's trying to squeeze onto every last bit of, profit they can get i don't i don't see anything happening other than more and more people being unemployed mm-hmm. yeah. eventually you're gonna have to do something about that and, and at the moment this seems to be the best way out of that hole because then if you can get people on some kind of income you know you can uplift your you know if you're the government you're uplifting your your tax revenue yeah. right i mean that's the thing is is if you know how are we going to pay for it well i mean if you think about it eventually it starts paying for itself hmm. because if everybody's got universal basic income so everybody can afford to you know be working better jobs and then people are making more income and then they're paying more into taxes if you know you yeah. actually manage to tax people based on how much they make rather than um how much they lobbied you um you know then eventually it'll pay for itself really. sure let me ask you one more thing before we wrap up here. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because I, you know, I, I know this is going to be the response of, of someone, um, and it's not really a. <laughs> well, and you know, and I'm not an economist. I'm not sure. an economist. I don't. I, you know, I'm I'm speaking off the cuff too. So I'm I'm right. sure I've been going around in circles a little bit with what I've been saying. I'm sure someone will be able to say, "Well, wait a minute, you're well, this, made is, no this, sense. Is, this isn't <laughs> going to be a serious question because I." I I feel like though every every time I try to have serious conversations about this, there's some reactionary in the crowd who's 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 like, "Well, you're uh, putting us on the uh, speeding train to what Venezuela has, you know, mm-hmm. uh, communism. It mm-hmm. ruins the world. Like, what, what's what's the answer to that? I mean, or, or is there one, or do you just roll your eyes inside? I think I think I, I mean I think that. I think that anyone who starts talking like that, I have to ask them what year they think it is. Because <laughs> if we want it to, you know, I think you guys had, and you know, the Cold War meant that we had 50 years of getting this idea of communism as the bad guy drilled down mm-hmm. our throat. And I'm not saying communism's the good guy, and I'm not saying Venezuela is the good guys, and I'm not, you know, what I'm saying is we need to start looking beyond the capitalism-communism dichotomy. We need to start recognizing that we live in the 21st century and that continuing to view the problems of the social problems of today through this, well, if we do this, the Soviets win kind of mentality, especially because people, when they talk about these issues, need to start digging down into if something's a good idea or a bad idea, why? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So 
right? Like, like, why is it a bad idea to make sure that people can afford a place to live and food to eat? Right. Right. And if your answer is, well, communism, <laughs> then you have to ask, well, why is communism a bad thing? Mm -hmm. And if we drill down on that, it's like, well, because, you know, uh, totalitarian governments that took choice away from the people and, you know, took their political opponents and jailed them without cause and, you know, had secret police that um, banished people they disagreed with and, you know, uh, great uh, amounts of uh, political strife and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, hmm. That sounds hmm, familiar. <laughs> I feel like we've got that already. Right. So, so, yeah. you know, and, and so if, if, I don't think that it should be looked at as a kind of communism versus capitalism dichotomy. I think it needs to be looked at through a, do you care about people or don't you mm -hmm. dichotomy? Mm -hmm. um, are the people around you worthy of living? Right. right? Um, yeah. That's, that's all it really comes down to. And I think we need to start, thinking about economics in a different way and in a way that isn't so um, binary, right? And I think, you know, at least for me speaking as a Canadian, maybe that's slightly easier because I grew up in a, you know, conservative right-wing province that still always had socialized health care. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, so I'm a little more used to seeing a mixed economy and a mixed view. Um, sure and not thinking about some of these political social issues as like a Coke, Pepsi, like <laughs> it's either this or that. And, you know, this idea that like, well, if you agree with this Republican position, you have to take all the other ones. Or if right. you agree with this Democrat position, you have to take all the other ones with it. And and rather than, well, let's maybe think about what, what works, though. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a really alarming thing about the way that we address social issues today is that instead of thinking about how can we help people, we think about how many points does this win my team? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Like at the end of the day, government isn't the Super Bowl. <laughs> the goal isn't for, you know, your team to get the most points and win the big cup. The goal is to have a functioning society. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to explain that to some people. That sounds like a fairy tale, but... um. Yeah. It's a fairy tale I like. Yeah, I mean, as someone who feels extremely politically homeless in the U.S. right now, I appreciate that a lot. Um, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? Oh, man, I think that it's always really valuable to be constantly like asking yourself, why you believe something mm. and, and keeping yourself open to new information. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I changed my mind on universal basic income because I kept my eyes and ears open to like the reality of what was going on around me rather than allowing my beliefs to shape the reality, mm. which is to say that, you know, you can either decide that you believe the sky is green right? And if you believe the sky is green, then what you do is when someone says, well, wait a minute, 
so then what color is Superman's costume? You say, well, it's green and it's red and it's yellow. What color is the American flag? Well, it's green and it's white and it's red, right? That's, that's your beliefs have shaped the reality around you. Hmm. Um, and you can do that. You can continue to just funnel everything through that. Uh, or you can look around and you can say, well, wait a minute. American flags, red, white, and blue. And that's the same color as the sky. <laughs> so the sky's gotta be blue, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, it's what's your paradigm. And I think let your be okay with the idea that, that things can challenge your beliefs and be okay with the idea that, um, as things around you change, you can change with them and be okay with the idea that what you believe now might not be what you believe tomorrow and that that's okay. Hmm. And that if you change your mind tomorrow to something else, it didn't necessarily mean you were wrong today either. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if, if, you know, it's, it's, if you live in Arizona, then it probably makes sense to not own a winter jacket. <laughs> if you move to Alaska, buy a winter jacket, right? And just because you now own a winter jacket, it doesn't suddenly mean, well, now wait a minute, you're not consistent. You used to not have a winter jacket. Like, are you some kind of hypocrite? Like, no, right? Like, so let let yourself be open to changing what you believe because circumstances have changed. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. All right. I have three final questions um, that I ask all of my guests trying to just poke at these questions mm. of ontology, epistemology. <laughs> How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, so first of all, Ben, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? Well, I think we're going to come back to my my old objectivism here a little bit because <laughs> this is this is the heart of, of that. I mean, if you want to get into objectivism, which I don't recommend, but um, if you if you want to uh, at least to understand what it is, understand what it appeal why it appeals to some people. Mm -hmm. This is the heart of it, which is is the idea. Um, I mean, really, this isn't objective. This is Aristotle. This is A equals A, <laughs> right? A thing is itself, yeah. right? Um, so what does that mean in a human sense? Hmm. What that means is you are you, mm -hmm. right? You aren't something else. Um, what is identity? It is how you are defining yourself and it's mutable, hmm. um, which isn't to say that, you know, I can't decide that I can fly, right? I, mean, I, can, I can give it a <laughs> shot. It won't work. Um, I can't. I can't start pretending I'm something I'm not, mm -hmm. but I can pretend, but, but, but I can become something else. Mm. And once I am that something else, that's what I am. Then mm -hmm. identity is, you know, I am who I am, but I might not be who I was yesterday. Mm. And that's, that's okay. But I'm still me regardless. Um, in that moment, in the present moment, you know, you are you, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think the only person who can really define who you are is, is, is yourself. Hmm. But ultimately that's who you are. Um, and if you try to be something else, I think it's going to cause you some trouble. Um, and, and, you know, the, the more that you can be yourself, the happier you'll be. Right? Let me poke at that because I feel like there's a contradiction there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when you say only you can ultimately only you can define yourself, mm-hmm. but you can't try to be something you're not. What's the difference between mm-hmm. defining yourself and trying to be something? What's the difference? So, so let's talk about being being something for the sake of someone else. Okay. Right. So, are you? the way you are because that's who you are or are you the way you are because that's how you think other people want you to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, you know yourself, mm-hmm. you're the only person who really can know yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, other people can guess at it, but you're the one who knows who you are. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not being true to yourself, well, you know that you're not being true to yourself. Yeah. Right. Well, and, what if I'm, what if I'm naturally a jerk, right. but my wife and kids want me to be kind should I just right. embrace the fact that I'm a jerk? <laughs> <laughs> we can all work to change, right? Right, And you yeah. should be working to change. And the thing is, is you can't pretend you're not a jerk, though. <laughs> if you don't want to be a jerk anymore, you can change. Mm-hmm. And some future version of you can not be a jerk. But that's not about pretend. Okay. That's about doing the work yeah. to not be a jerk anymore. That's about waking up every day and saying, I'm not going to be a jerk today. That's about, you know, making your amends to the people you've been a jerk to or uh, doing the work to not engage in jerky behavior. Right. But if you were a jerk and you're just going to say, well, no, I'm a nice guy, actually. <laughs> and I'm a nice guy because I say I am. Like, that's not, that's pretending, right? That's, yeah. that's being some, trying to be something you're not. Is yeah. you you put up a mask that says I'm a nice guy, and then you go home and you're a jerk, right? Right. Yeah, that's a distinction I can appreciate. Yeah. So you can build yourself into something new, but you can't snap your fingers and make yourself something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. All right. Second question: What is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? I think that we are. You know ultimately a sum of parts, right? I mean, you are the sum total of everything that's gone into you, right? Mm. So that's the people around you. That's the culture that you live in. That's the time that you live in. That's the genetics that you have. That's all of it. It's all important. Mm. It all makes you who you are. And ultimately what matters is what you choose to do with it. Mm. Um, you're American, I'm Canadian, doesn't matter, maybe. Because uh, <laughs> it, it comes down to, you know, how have you decided to let that influence you? You know, I talk about I grew up in a very um, individualistic culture, mm-hmm. and I still would think that, you know, and there's still parts of that that I, that I respond to. Mm-hmm. And I talk about, well, you know, in university, I was really into objectivism. Well, there's still parts of objective that I respond to that I, that I don't think are total bunk. Um, I think because because philosophy is complicated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, it's not useful to throw babies out with bathwater. <laughs> um, and and also it would be, you know, to come back the, to the idea of identity, it would be a lie to try to pretend that that period of my life when I sort of espoused those ideas never happened or never influenced who I am today or never had any kind of impact on who I am today. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and who I am today is not who I was five years ago, and it's not who I'm going to be five years from now. Hmm. Yeah. All right. And finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? What do you think? <laughs> I, I think that 
truth is a lot, it, it, you know, the problem with truth is that the, the farther away the thing that you're trying to determine the truth of is from you, the more difficult it becomes, mm. right? It's very easy for me to ascertain the truth of uh, my desk because it's right here in front of me. Sure. And it, it's harder to ascertain the truth of stuff the farther and farther away it is from me because uh, I have to start relying on do I trust the reports of others, mm -hmm. right? Because once it's out of my sensory perception, I have to trust everybody else's sensory perception. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all have to agree. We, you know, we all come to our own personal conclusions about what is true. And I think, you know, then we, we form a sort of aggregate, right? Mm -hmm. We all agreed Pluto was a planet there for a few years and then we <laughs> changed our minds. Um, that said, and, and, you know, in this, you, 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 it's funny. These these last three questions are the ones that really get me thinking about about old Ayn Rand and her objectivism again, because they they come to the truth of they come to the real heart of that philosophy. And what's interesting about that philosophy is that the people who espouse it, especially in American politics, um, don't actually follow it at all. Um, your average Republican is just about as true an objectivist as they are true a Christian, which is to say, not at all, um, because. The, the heart of that philosophy is the idea of, I mean, the reason it's called objectivism is the idea that it's an objective view of reality, which of course it's not. But <laughs> the reason why it's called that is this idea that things exist, mm -hmm. right? There are things that, you know, I'm holding this pencil and it's in my hand and I can't deny that. And what we've seen from certain politicians is a move farther and farther away from that, right? <laughs> Where truth is as vague a prospect as we can make it. Yeah. And I think that as a, we're at a moment right now as a culture, we have to be very, very careful about mm. how we handle the question of truth. Mm. Because I, I, you know, I, uh, as part of my university degree, um, I took courses in, in communications and communications theory. And, mm. you know, as having gotten a film studies degree and, and having this, this sort of education, you know, courses in postmodernism and, and things like this. Right. Sure. Yeah. And what I have seen is I have seen the language and concepts of academia used very, very effectively against those people by mm -hmm. people who don't believe. It. Right. Right. Because once you can introduce the idea that, well, truth is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if truth is different to everyone, then nothing is true. Mm -hmm. And if nothing's true, then I can start making up whatever I want mm -hmm. um, very, very easily. Uh, it's important, you know, to recognize that there are some things that we have to agree on are objective truths. Otherwise, we can't function together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we've seen a lot of breakdown in society lately is people don't have agreed upon truths with each other anymore we don't see the world in the same way we you know we don't both agree that the sky is blue anymore <laughs> right and when provided with evidence from the other side we just we dismiss it rather than recognizing that something that, that something must be true here right? right yeah yeah and i mean that's the whole reason i do this show <laughs> you know to <laughs> try to poke at this idea of, of can people change their minds? Um, do people respond to evidence and what makes people respond to evidence? Um, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you have any solution for that problem, 
I mean, maybe I, right now we can solve the whole <laughs> Western world. I, I think based on my own experience that people respond best when they start to have experiences in their life that show them the truth of that evidence. Hmm. So, which is to say that it's very, very, it's easy for people to dismiss things when they have no experience of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's easy, you know, out of sight, out of mind is very much a, uh, a powerful concept. Hmm. And I think that if you want to get someone to change their mind on a topic, I think you have to give them the time to think it over. Mm-hmm. And I think you also need to contextualize it in a way that addresses their point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think that it has to be presented in a way that ties in with things that they know and that they've seen. Mm. Um, Because it's very easy for people to divorce themselves from certain issues or certain facts of life and then become increasingly isolated and, you know, say that, well, I've never, I've never seen that happen. So it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I think, um, if you, you know, open your mind to the reality that people have different lived experiences than you do, mm. um, and, and learn empathy and learn to put yourself in each other's shoes. Because, you know, for example, I remember it took me a really long time to just like accept things that, you know, like um, my wife would talk to me about being like catcalled on the subway or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would have a hard time believing it mm-hmm. because I would say, well, I've never seen that happen. Mm-hmm. And of course I've never seen it happen because mm-hmm. a, no one's ever catcalled me and B if I'm out in public with her, she doesn't get catcalled because, right. uh, I'm with her, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But just because I've never seen it happen doesn't mean it doesn't happen. But it's right. harder, it's harder for me to come around to that when I've never seen it. Yeah. Right. I mean, God, what an amazing thing Twitter is because uh, it, it certainly has been, I think, a big part of why these uh, protests against the police in the United States have reached such a critical mass because it's a lot easier to understand how awful they are when everyone can go on Twitter and see a video, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. see thousands of videos, never ending streams of videos of yeah. stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, how do you, how do you change people's mind? I think you have to recognize that people think about the world differently than you do and go through different life experiences than you do. And then recognize that you have to kind of position your argument in a way that fits with that. That's how you change other people's mind. And if you want your mind to be open to change, you have to do the reverse. You have to recognize that other people think of things differently than you do, have had different lived experiences than you do, and be willing to see things through their eyes as well, right? I mean, it's it's empathy. It's basic empathy. It's not it's not hard, but we don't do a very good job of teaching it to each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe that's the less cynical understanding of kind of the postmodern truth is relative thing is like... <laughs> Yeah, truth is relative because everybody has their own perspective on it. And it's important to learn from those perspectives what you can. I mean, if you really want to be cynical about it, um, <laughs> the if you want a selfish reason to learn empathy, uh, it's that you once you've learned empathy and that you've learned how to see things through other people's eyes, you can sell them anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that might be the most American. <laughs> Ben, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much. I hope that I wasn't too incoherent. Yeah, it was fun. Um, Before we go, you want to plug your podcast or anything else one more time? Yeah, for sure. So um, as mentioned up at the top of the show, I'm the co-host of Scream Scene uh, with my wife, Sarah Rowe. Uh, That's our horror movie podcast. You can find us at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, There you'll find the show. You'll also find uh, the list of all the horror movies ranked from best to worst. We've currently got 158 films on that list. You'll also find a link to our YouTube playlist where any of the films that we've watched that are available on YouTube are linked there. Um, If you want to come at me uh, on Twitter, uh, you can do so at CineastBenRowe. That's C-I-N-E-A-S-T-B-E-N-R-O-W-E. You can also send me an email at BenTheoRowe at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-T-H-E-O-R-O-W-E at gmail.com. Those are probably the two main spots if you want to uh, come yell at me about anything that I've said here today. All right. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and you can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington, or just go to my website, LukeTHarrington.com. I'll see you next time. I recently got pulled into a discussion that I probably shouldn't have let myself get pulled into. Um, My hundred-year-old grandfather, (laughs) bless his heart, sent out an email forward, as hundred-year-old grandfathers are wont to do. Um, And it was, was, uh, you know, the gist of it was, you better vote for Trump. Um, and I, you know, I was prepared to just ignore it. Um, but then people started replying all to it. Um, and I, you know, I, my, a cousin of mine who's probably a decade older than me or so, I want to say 10 or 12 years older, rough guess, um, wrote a pretty lengthy email about, you know, why, you should vote for Trump. Um, and I thought it was badly argued and <laughs> not a lot of convincing reasons in it. Um, and you know, he was going after my sister, so <laughs> I got to jump in, right? I can't, I can't not. Um, so I said, you know, one, one and I'm done. I wrote one quick email responding to him just, um, saying, Hey, here's why I, don't find that convincing. Um, here's why you should rethink your position. Probably making myself sound smarter than I actually am, but it's me telling the story. I'm going to tell, tell how I want to. Um, and you know, he blew up at it basically. Like, I. He, he sent just a quick missive in response. that was like, all right, then vote for Biden. If you want to, push this country down the hill towards socialism or something to that effect. Um, and to be honest, I, I laughed out loud <laughs> when I saw that email. Um, not only because as far as economic issues go, Biden's basically, basically a Republican, but, um, 
mainly because of how huge a gap there is uh, between, you know, my generation and even Gen X, you know, like I don't think there are many people my age or younger who are going to be affected by the word socialism the way I was hoping you would affect me. Um, I don't think there are many people in their 20s up to their mid-30s, maybe even late-ish 30s, who are scared of socialism. Um, And, you know, there's a reason for that. It's because for anyone my age or younger for our entire lives or at least our entire adult lives what the word capitalism has meant is okay you're going to be working multiple jobs you're going to be struggling to pay your bills you're not going to have health care you're probably going to be weighed down with massive amounts of student debt because you did what your guidance counselor told you to when you were a teenager and too dumb to know the difference. Um, No one's going to give you a hand. And, but, but you know, when the people at the top screw things up again, you're going to be expected to pass the hat for them, you know? Um, And that, I mean, that's what this economy has been since basically the turn of the century, if not before. Um, And, you know, if you tell people, okay, that's capitalism, like, of course, people my age are not going to want any part of it. Um, Now, I'm not going (laughs) to... I'm not going to try to uh, get statistics right, because, you know, if you want the statistics, you can uh, look them up for yourself. But... Um, I've seen in several places that my generation, the one popularly called millennials, quote unquote, is going to be the first one in U.S. history to not do better than their parents. Um, And we're told to just accept that because that's how capitalism works. Now, you know, I know listeners who are familiar with my current situation are going to listen to this and maybe scoff at it because I'm doing okay. Like, I'm in pretty good shape. Um, But I'm not really talking about myself, right? I'm talking about my generation. I'm very lucky. Like, my family is in very good shape, but we didn't get here through hard work, right? There are people that work a lot harder than us and still have nothing. Um, not that we don't work hard, just that we hit a really big patch of good luck. Um, and you know, me doing well doesn't erase the countless people my age that are doing extremely poorly, um, and really struggling to make ends meet. Um, and I've spent years there, you know, like it's right now, (laughs) um, compared to my entire adult life is an anomaly. Um, But the point is that capitalism, as we understand it, is clearly not working for everybody. And the acolytes of capitalism seem completely uninterested in making it work for everybody. And then they wonder, you know, why 
people my age or younger are so much more likely to identify as socialists. Well, it's not that hard to understand. Um, I was a guest on a podcast uh, way back in January, and I, I've mentioned this on the show before, but um, it was called, the, the name of the podcast is called J.B. Shreve and the End of History. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of a Christian political show hosted by a, a guy named J.B. Shreve. Um, it's pretty good. You can look it up. My episode back in January was called the Christian Democrat sort of, um, <laughs> cause I am a Christian and used to be a Democrat. Uh, and he wanted to interview a Christian Democrat and I guess I was the closest he could find. Um, JB, I, I don't know exactly what his politics are and he seems intent on keeping it that way. Um, but he struck me as a relatively conservative guy. Like he's a, you know, a, a evangelical Christian from Arkansas, I believe. Um, so, you know, not <laughs> a socialist. Um, but something he said to me that was really striking, um, he, he, he said, you know, back in 2014, so he was, you know, talking about where he was six years ago. Um, he said, you know, I looked at the numbers of wealth inequality. Um, the top 1% owns like 40% of the wealth at the time. Um, and I think it's only gone up since, but he said, you know, I, I looked at those numbers and I said to myself, you know, if people were aware of what things are like now, they'd be in the streets, right? Um, he said that, that that's where he was six years ago. And well, here we are six years later, people are in the streets. Um, and, you know, <laughs> a lot of that is framed as uh, being about race. And I'm not saying it's not about race. Um, obviously it is, um, but not all of it. Uh, and you know, the thing about the weird thing about American culture is we have a lot of trouble talking about class here or even acknowledging class exists, you know? Um, so yeah, a lot of it's about race. A lot of it's about other things as well, like poor people just not being able to take it anymore. Um, and JB said something to me on the show that in retrospect is chilling. Um, he said to me, you know, every time things get like this with the wealthy owning more and more and more historically, there's always something that resets it. War, plague, famine, you know, um, and you know, <laughs> reset seems like a, a strangely impotent word for that because the reset he was talking about is a reset that really harms a lot of people, like kills people, you know? Um, but historically I think he was right. Um, now we could argue all day about whether, uh, Karl Marx's political ideas were good ideas. Um, I think their track record is not great. I'm not going to defend, say, Soviet Russia or, um, you know, uh, communist China or whatever. But 
I think people who uh, want to dismiss uh, Karl Marx's political goals are too quick to dismiss Marx's analysis of history, um, which is largely correct, right? That wealth and power, people who have wealth and power always use that wealth and power to amass more wealth and power and to protect their wealth and power, even when it's to their own peril. Um, the old saying about eventually the poor will have nothing left to eat but the rich. Well, maybe it's a tad dramatic, but it's true, right? You can't continue to ratchet up the economic pressure on the bottom of society and expect it not to result in chaos and violence. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, JB, as JB said, you know, there's always some disaster that resets things. And, you know, here we are eight months or however many months into a pandemic. Um, there has been some rioting in the streets. It, you know, hasn't exploded into revolution yet, you know, but um, who's to say that it won't? Um, I keep coming back to uh, what Ben said in our conversation about, you know, it'd be nice to get out in front of this problem while we still can for once. Um, we don't have a good track record as a species. Humanity does not have a good track record of solving the problems inequality causes before it's too late. There's a book um, by an author named Walter Scheidel, who is a professor of classics and history at Stanford called The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality, from the Stone Age to the 21st century, uh, came out about three years ago. And Scheidel's thesis is that the only thing that has ever solved the problems of economic equality in history is violence. Um, there's never been any other solution to it. Um, now, I, I'm not calling for violence, obviously. I'm not saying, hey, take to the streets, kill rich people. Like that's not something I would endorse. Um, but that being said, at a certain point, violence becomes an inevitability, right? Like poverty's not a joke. Poverty is not about people not being able to buy like the big HD TV they want. It's about people not being able to provide the basic things their families need, food, shelter, etc. right? If you make people desperate enough, they will do desperate things, right? Um, back during the Democratic primary, uh, there was a tweet that Andrew Yang, the UBI candidate, posted. Um, that I saw people, you know, tearing into on social media. It was, it was something along the lines of um, three and a half million people are currently employed as truckers, you know, and self-driving cars are just around the corner, you know, and we're taking people who have no other skills other than driving trucks and we're putting millions of them out of work all at once that's going to result in violence. Um, and, 
you know, a lot of people on Twitter got all mad at, at Andrew and were like, you're, you're trying to justify this white male rage of mass shootings. And, you know, well, no, <laughs> I don't think that's what Yang was saying at all. Uh, saying that something is likely to happen is not at all the same as saying it should happen. Right. It's it's not it wasn't Yang saying truckers rise up and kill people. It was Yang saying there's a law of large numbers, right? If you have a big enough group of people and make them desperate enough, a few of them are going to resort to violence. Um, and a few people resulting to violence almost always leads to more people resulting to violence. That's just the way violence works. Um, and we need to do something about that before it's too late. Um, and that's ultimately what UBI is about. Like it's an attempt to head that off, right? If you make enough people desperate enough, there will be violence. Um, and that's just reality, right? That's not an endorsement of violence. That's just saying cause and effect, right? Um, and UBI is one solution to that. I don't know if automation is as unstoppable as some people seem to think it is like Yang and like Roe, but it does seem that way right now. Um, more and more people are going to be put out of jobs and the result is not going to be good unless we do something about it, right? So if you are a fan of capitalism, if you like capitalism and you want to keep it, you need to find a way to make capitalism work for everybody because if it doesn't, people will get desperate desperation will result in violence. Um, and you know, if you, if we can't do that, then we need to start exploring other options for an economic system. And ultimately that's what UBI is about. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, if you like what I'm doing here on the show, please take a second to log on to Apple Podcasts and rate me, review me, um, or rate and review the show, rather. Uh, if you write me a review, I will read it live on the air, um, even if it's a one-star review, because that could be entertaining, too. If you want to support me financially, I have a Kofi, which Ben dumped on in our conversation, but it does exist. Um, not not my Kofi specifically. He he uh, criticized Kofi over Patreon, but Kofi is what I have. Um, so go on to Kofi. That's ko-fi.com/slash/changedmymind, and there you can throw me a few bucks. Um, buy me a coffee because I need it to keep going. Um, if you don't want to do that, here's an even better option. Buy my book. Uh, as this podcast goes live, we are nine days out from the official release date of my book. I've already heard from some people that pre-ordered it that they already have it in their hands. Um, that is a book called Murder Bears, Moonshine and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. Um, that is going to be my debut to nonfiction uh, to long form humor, to Harper Collins, uh, which I'm really excited about. And it is already a number one Amazon bestseller, uh, which is probably less impressive than it sounds. <laughs> I checked it the other day and, and based on, uh, based on pre-orders, it had a little flag at the top that said number one bestseller. 
Um, I followed up on that and it was the number one bestseller for the category of new releases in religious humor, uh, of which I think there's only like 36 books in that category right now. So not the most impressive thing in the world, but it's a number one bestseller that's going on the resume. You're never going to stop hearing from me about how I'm a number one bestselling author because, you know, that, that that's how I roll. Um, so yeah, go pre-order that. If you uh, subscribe to the show, you would have gotten a bonus chapter about a week ago uh, from the audiobook um, read by a guy named Jacob Lewis, who's really great. Uh, he's a talented guy. I was going to do the audiobook myself, but this plague uh, put the kibosh on that. So thanks a lot, plague. Um, that's the way it goes. Uh, for other things that I'm involved with, go to my website. It's luketherrington.com. And that's about all that I have. Um, I want to thank Ben for being on the show. Uh, please check out his podcast, Scream Scene. It's great. I love it. I want to thank... Uh, Jonathan Clausen for editing the show. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the show. Check out the Commentarians and Faith and Other Oddities, their other podcasts. And finally, I want to thank you for listening to Changed My Mind. And don't be afraid to change your mind. Your mind.